Today's episode of Tech Talks on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by Tech Impact, focused on unlocking prosperity by embracing technology. For more, head to techimpact.it. Welcome to Tech Talks with Kathy Simpson, and I'm your host. And thanks on behalf of the entire team at Tech Impact. You know, this episode continues our experimentation with taking the podcast outside the studio into the community through webinars and other events. This show is adapted from a panel that I hosted and moderated on March 12th as part of the 2021 Virtual Data Challenge at UMB. Every year, UMB's International Business and Entrepreneurship Center has a data challenge. This year, they went virtual. And it drew 38 teams from eight countries and five Canadian provinces. And they use data to tell stories and provide recommendations. We called our panel The Power of Data. And my intent was to make it a learning experience about the breadth, depth, and opportunities that come from working with and using data. And I wanted the data challenge participants and others to get to know leaders in data. It's not one of those panels where every panelist answers the same questions and we hear the same thing three times. I promise you that. These three panelists are working on transformational data products and projects. We talk about their career paths and perspectives on how data can advance ideas, support better and quicker decisions, and build better products. Their range of backgrounds and experiences show that there are many fascinating paths to a data-driven career. The three guests couldn't be more diverse. Justin is working remotely for a startup officially based out of New York, but with a workforce across the globe. He's leading the product vision and team, and he lives here in New Brunswick. Susan is the chief technology officer at the Ocean Supercluster, and she has worked extensively in data throughout various stages of her career. Data and leveraging data has become a big part of many OCS projects. And finally, Jason is a partner with MMP and is leading a national applied data and AI practice as part of MMP's technology management group. Jason didn't start his career in data, but he's knee deep in it now. We cover a lot of ground in this one, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, it's our pleasure to be here today, and one of the goals of today's panel is to introduce you to leaders who are working with and seeing the tr- tremendous impact of data. It's also to take an opportunity to learn more about their careers, their companies, and what they're doing. We're going to discuss some current and relevant trends. You're going to hear about some projects And we're going to definitely talk about what are the types of career opportunities that you can be considering. And then we hope that you'll ask them some great questions so that they can be challenged and we'll answer anything that you throw at us. And you have to stay on because you don't get to find out if you're a finalist until the very end. So that was a pretty good trick, Mandy. I like it. So um, we've got Justin, Susan, and Jason. And they're each going to introduce themselves and take a couple moments to talk about the companies that they work for, the work that's exciting them right now, and, you know, what really has led them down a path to be engaged in the things that they're doing. So I'm going to start off with uh, Justin. 
who I've known now for nearly 20 years. And he has really spent his entire career as someone who is in love with data. He probably doesn't imagine being introduced like that, but it has been his lifeline. And just about every job he's done has been involved in data. So Justin, we look forward to learning more about your career and what you're doing and over to you. Hi, thanks, Kathy. Um, yep, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's uh, great to be able to talk about what I've done and hopefully some will get some benefit uh, out of all my experiences. So I moved to Canada in about 2000, 2004. I came by South Africa, UK, and I worked in the US for a couple of years. Uh, and then I bounced around St. John working at sort of every shop on the block, IT-wise, um, Salesforce, T4G, where I met Kathy, uh, Bell Alliant, you name it, I've, I've worked there. And then in the last couple of years, sort of branched out and have been working down in the US, but still based out of St. John, which has been interesting um, and has really changed somewhat uh, through COVID, whereas my first prior engagements being remote certainly had imposed some limitations on sort of the leadership positions that you could take on in these companies with COVID. That's just kind of being blown right out of the water and uh, you're uh, just on a level playing field with everyone else, it seems so at this point. So I came up through software and then just over the years working at different companies, working with applications that were increasingly using data to make do decisioning. Um, these sort of products evolves from more sophisticated, from adding things up and putting them on the screen to now building models, um, and we're seeing the industry really mature where we're actually starting to do decisioning, taking actions, whether that's in engineering with actuation or um, or pretty much any industry using the data itself. Um, so I found like my software skills really dovetailed well into a more sort of quantitative side of things. I went to UNB and took a bunch of classes to kind of skill up. And I found that really helpful uh, and and because of all the tools used in the industry have come out of from the software side, it's it's a, they're a great complement uh, those skills together. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's that's me. A, kind of a long introduction, but uh, uh, like you said, Kathy, twenty years, so I had to give it justice. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about Instant and what you're doing right now, and what's it like living in St. John but working for an organization in New York? Uh, well, right now we have, it's not, it's, it's started as a New York company and they had an office in New York. It's a startup and they, this is kind of their second year. And it's, I worked down there prior for another company. That was my first sort of engagement outside of the Maritimes and uh, down in the US. And it's the same, it's a follow-on from the founder of that initial company sort of gave me a call and said, hey, I'm looking into starting something new, so why don't you come on board? So I took the leap again. Um, so initially they had an office down there and it was sort of go down once a month, try to squeeze all your meetings into the week. Um, now a lot of people who we've hired that are not from originally from New York, actually most New Yorkers, most people you meet in New York aren't from New York, whether they live there or not. So what happened is we had people who are originally from Pakistan, from Turkey, um, California, uh, Vancouver, uh, North Carolina, a lot of them just went home, 
right? Well, not home, but they but they moved back to either their home countries or moved in with back to their where their parents were. Um, so really, we're I think out of a company of about fifteen to twenty, we only we have less than a quarter of us actually based in New York now. The day runs through video conferencing, Slack messaging. Uh, you know, you make certain adjustments for working that way, but the software tools are so good these days with tracking tools like Jira, um, code commit, we're all doing code reviews, we're putting things in, we're testing models, we're, uh, the tools are great and COVID's forced everyone to really make them sort of first-class citizens uh, in, the, in the landscape. So what's this startup trying to accomplish with their oh, solution? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't really get to that part, did I? Um, it's in the fraud detection space and uh, in okay. identity verification. So with the first company, um, it, it follows on directly from this use case of this first company where banks use these uh, fraud detection methods when they onboard customers to sort of detect fake identities, uh, probability of fraud, and to kind of keep them out. So the gatekeepers. Um, so financial institutions have quite a sophisticated history of building these stacks. The problem is with sort of new immigrant populations, millennial populations, they don't really have a lot of credit data that feeds these traditional detection stacks like credit bureau information, things like that. So the premise of the first business was to say, well, let's expand that out use social media data, use untraditional data sources to kind of try to, because it's very competitive out there, so you want to grow your market, so you really have to start letting millennials in. You really have to let new immigrant populations in if you want to be competitive and grow your market. So these tools are very attractive to banks from that perspective. Um, So Instant was sort of an extension of that business case where it's saying instead of selling a service that you bake into this fraud stack alongside one of your other vendors, we just take the whole thing uh, turnkey as a as a sort of ser- software service, so you don't have to integrate any data vendors. You're not building onboarding forms. You basically just drop some code on your web page, and that sort of routes it through our system where we've built the models. We do the biometric capture. We do the device fingerprinting, um, document capture, and things like that. And then because we the the real like secret source of all well, not secret source because it's kind of a diff- differentiator, that's probably a better word, is that because we control that whole stack as a service, as sort of a black box, um, we can go and indemnify it and securitize the risk. So we take risk off companies' books so they can free up capital for, for sort of other projects. Because especially in the fintech industry, there's very strict capital requirements around yes. um, balancing for risk. So there's this use case of, We'll, our SLA says we'll let in more good because one way to eliminate fraud totally is just to not let anyone in. So you can't sell a product that says we'll eliminate fraud because that's sort of a you have to sort of by your SLA guarantee to let more customers than they would have with their old system, and then you're indemnifying fraud. So any losses they incur, you're covering by your insurance. So it's a lot of uh, engineering, a lot of uh, real time because all real time. Um, so you have to give an answer in two to three seconds. And in those two to three seconds, you have to call out to anywhere up to 10 different vendors. You have to take their massive data, um, raw data. You have to collapse that down to uh, features, which you feed into your model, which gives you these predictions. And then you're rerouting it into their system with these uh, assertions of whether this is who this individual is who they say they are. 
uh, their identity checked out, the probability of committing fraud is high, low, medium, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's it in a nutshell, really. Uh, Last question for you before I move over to Susan. I mean, you've been a product guy, Justin. Um, you've worked at a lot of product companies, so that's in your blood. Think about your early days to now and how much has changed with the data capability, like you just mentioned with your product now, you're talking about responses in two or three seconds. How much has changed in the past even 10 years with what is now capable with the software companies that you've worked at that wasn't possible 10 years ago in the data space? Well, 10 years ago, sort of your product was largely driven by what was possible technologically. So you would say, what can we do technologically? And then you design it that way. Now, a lot of it is there's these what they call data products where you're taking data and turning it into something else, whether that's a decision to onboard someone uh, with, with a view to reducing risk, whether it's looking at thermal images to tell if a part coming off a production line has defects. Um, So you can't just go and build the tech and then hope it works. You have to sort of, there's now two parallel streams where you have to build out the tech, but then you also have to make sure that the data supports your hypothesis, which gives you product value. So I've worked at product companies, but I've never been a product guy. I've always been an engineer. But now that these products are coming along where yeah, sure, we have this massive IIoT stack that can stream, handle streaming, millions of streaming events a second. That's wonderful. We put it into a database. You can query it. But if the data doesn't support you being able to use that to make quality decisions or um, planning and optimization um, decisions, then you really, you can have all that data and just it's just going to sit there. It's not going to be valuable. Okay. So the product is driven a lot now by data I wouldn't say tech has disappeared, but tech has been largely commoditized by the fact that there's now three clouds and they all offer very similar services as opposed to where there was a plethora of, of databases and languages. And uh, so tech's largely been commoditized. It still very requires very skilled individuals to put it together in the right way, but it's no use creating massive databases of data that can't be used it to affect um decisioning outcomes that that support your product. Yeah. That's a great, great way to put it. So thank you, Justin. We're going to totally change the discussion here with Susan. And uh, Susan's joining us from St. John's, Newfoundland. It's great to have you, Susan. So start off with telling us a little bit about yourself and then love for you to get into the Ocean Supercluster, which is where your hat is these days. And it may surprise some of the people on the call at just how much of your time is being spent on projects that involve data and the significance of those projects and the data outcomes that we're trying to accomplish with the work that you're doing. So we can't get into that until we know a little bit about you and what the Ocean Supercluster is all about. And of course, my phone rings the second that uh, I come online. And I also had a cat scratching at my door as well. I had to get rid of earlier. So sorry for <laughs> helping out there for a second. Um, yeah, hi. Good good, after, good morning, good afternoon, everybody, wherever you may be. Um, I guess I'll start with saying a few words about myself. And in thinking through it, um, you know, just my background, uh, there's 
I've done a bunch of different gigs, all kind of primarily in the ocean space around innovation or product development or the management of, of the same. And uh, it probably would be interesting, I guess, just to step through that from the context of the relevancy of data, I think, uh, in each of those instances. So maybe I'll just take a little bit of time to do it that way. Um, I guess my, my undergrad is in naval architecture and engineering. So I'm an engineer by, by undergrad and spent the first part of my career working in the U.S. for Brunswick, which is the world's largest boat, boat designer and manufacturer. And my, uh, my job was primarily to design boats. Right. And, and I guess it's one of the probably the most traditional, um, traditional ways of thinking about data visualization. Right. Um, you know, historically, what you do as a naval architect is you look at data, you, you know, form a geometry that you think is going to work. You look at different types of baseline data, other products, uh, uh, you know, historical information, and you use that to create a surface that you visualize through the mathematics and the data of the whole, right? And so, uh, you know, one, I guess, instance of how, um, you know, data gets visualized to create a product. And is also, I think, probably a pretty interesting example of, um, you know, what Justin was talking about with respect to, you know, the real convergence of data with decision-making and judgment calls. And at the end of the day, you know, there's lots of data out there. There's more data out there than there ever was. It's going to continue to be that way. And so the, I guess the, the place where the human gets inserted is, is kind of changing and evolving and advancing, but it still happens, right, at the end of the day in terms of, because that's where the edge is, where you're making those judgment calls and those decisions based on data. And that's where kind of the front end of, of intelligence really is and, and keeps changing over time. But that, that, that kind of arrangement is pretty, you know, solid. Um, and then uh, I guess after that, I, again, another part of um, engineering and naval architecture is actually testing products. So I've spent thousands of hours on the water, you know, troubleshooting various types of issues with propulsion systems or engines or boats, you know, that type of thing. Um, and you get, you know, huge amounts of data coming in from the various types of uh, equipment and sensors that you have, you know, to help understand how a product is working. So data is also really important to product development and the commercialization of a product and making sure that it's you know performing the way you want it's competing in the space um in a way again being formed by data so that you're sure that it's going to hit its market uh you're going to make money off the product uh and then obviously you're using data to identify outlying statistics uh design of experiments you know all those different types of techniques uh that you can use at that stage you know to really understand if something is safe to use uh you know have you mitigated all the risks in a product particularly when you've got it in in um, operating an environment where humans are involved out uh, the ocean is obviously can be a pretty risky thing um so now, i guess another kind of instance of how data can be applied uh, in, 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 with judgment to, um, you know, to advance a company and to advance ideas. Uh, and then I, I decided it was important enough for me to know about data. I had to do a grad uh, degree in information systems to take on kind of the next piece, which was around overseeing product development. And so with a really big company, you know, huge numbers of people working on large numbers of products, uh, each of which have thousands and thousands of components and material and, you know, different types of things that go, go into building a large boat. Um, you know, obviously digitalization of data and data silos and, you know, integrating different databases from different departments and all that becomes really important if you want to be an efficient company and, and manage, you know, a group or a team that's, you know, working with that much data. And so kind of taking it up a step, um, you're kind of getting into kind of a systems level understanding of data. You're, you're less and less about, you know, being the person that's acquiring the data or developing the hardware that will go get the data. Um, but you know you're, you're getting to the point that you're using it to make decisions on 
you know, not just a product level, but at a portfolio level, like what are the types of products we would want to build? How are we working as a company together to be more efficient? Like how does our team need to be restructured to be able to better, um, you know, uh, develop products and, and, and be more efficient? So I guess another kind of level of abstraction, but you're still at the end of the day using data to make judgment calls. Um, and then I decided to move back home, which is great. Uh, and I started work for a national center of excellence uh, in information technology and mathematics called uh, MyTax. And uh, that was a little bit less about kind of hands-on data analysis and all that sort of stuff and was more about managing products that were dealing with, you know, huge big data questions. So that was a lot of fun. I uh, had, had, a, had a bit of fun setting up programs with that organization in, uh, in Atlantic Canada. And then I took over, um, uh, moved on from that, and then um, became a vice president of ops for an ocean tech company called, uh, a former ocean tech company called Madrock. And in that instance, um, we were designing and manufacturing lifeboat evacuation systems. And um, I was overseeing a couple of different manufacturing facilities in, in different parts of the world. Um, and then again, coming back to the data piece, um, in that instance, it's, it's, it's manufacturing related data. So you know, thousands of parts being built, some of which are, you know, many of which are not under your control, right? And so, uh, you know, you're managing defects, um, you're wondering where boats are in different parts of the world, where people are in different parts of the world, uh, where everything had to be at the right time. And that is all decision making based on data you have coming in. Um, and a lot of times in, in, in real time, right? So you want to be able to react to that. Uh, quickly. And then um, I moved over to the offshore oil and gas sector and um, more into the collaborative collaborative innovation space and a little bit more like what I'm doing now um, with a group called Petroleum Research Newfoundland and Labrador. And we uh, that, that organization had a mandate to advance the R&D agenda of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador's offshore sector. And they did projects um, about two things, typically. One was collecting data to be able to better understand the environment, primarily uh, the types of species uh, within it, how different types of activity conducted by humans were impacting the environment, um, or uh, developing technology that will go out and get the data. Um, so it's really uh, you know coming back to uh, the very ubiquitous nature of data and the importance of it, from not only from, from a business perspective and a commercial perspective in terms of having the tools that you need to collect it uh, and to have that data be quality and be coming in as in a, in in a timely manner, um, and then but also uh, the data itself, and and looking at it, and analyzing it, and, and visualizing that in a way that it's um it's easier to, for people to make decisions. And then uh, I guess maybe I've gone on a bit too far here, but that's how I ended up with the OSC. And so uh, maybe just to to wrap up, um, the o- Ocean Supercluster is a national initiative that's fundamentally aimed at advancing innovation in Canada's ocean space through collaborative activity across multiple different ocean sectors. Um, and I will, I have, to, I have to say this, I'm just compelled. Um, in the very beginning of this, uh, this initiative, it's, a, it's not that long it's, uh, that it's been on the ground. It's only about three years old and is um, a collection of hundreds of different companies and public sector organizations that collaborate on projects and initiatives that are aimed, again, to, to improve Canada's competitiveness and productivity in the ocean space. Um, and when, the pro- when this whole kind of organization was forming, um, we, uh, we were, you know, pulled together all these different sectors, trying to understand you know, what the common ground was, where the common challenges were in oceans, and how people would actually be able to work together to develop technology to be able to address some of these really hairy problems uh, that exist. 
And the number one common denominator across different ocean sectors was lack of high quality real-time data. That was the common denominator. It was the glue that actually kind of binded uh, companies and organizations, different sectors together around the value of doing such a really significant, you know, game-changing uh, movement in Canada's ocean space. And so, I mean, I know that was a bit long-winded, but I was trying to give people a bit of a sense of, um, you know, the, the versatility really that exists if you're data capable and, and data savvy and, and you know, can, um, there's a lot of opportunity, you know, in that space between data and decision-making and intelligence to have some really cool and interesting, um, you know, variations on careers and, and not necessarily at the outset think that, you know, just because you're this kind of data person, you can't be that kind of data person. You know what I'm saying? No, Susan, that was perfect. And if you look now at, I mean, you've spent your entire career working around data and some capability. If you look at what you're doing now with the OSC, you're getting hundreds of proposals for really some leading thinking initiatives to change the way we're approaching the economy from an, uh, the ocean's economy. How is data finding its way into these projects? Uh, there's there's no project that hasn't that isn't on kind of underlying um, the value proposition for it is typically around data. Maybe I'll maybe I could um, just talk through this from maybe the bottom up. Um, and so, you know, a lot a lot of the projects that we have are are typically technology providers, right? So so um, Companies that develop products or offer services that inherently um, have a, a data value proposition to them. They, they go out, they have that, they're the, they're the hardware guys. They go out and build the sensors, they go out and collect the data. Or they're the, you know, um, cloud guys that are, are helping to change products um, from kind of desktop applications to cloud-based applications or the vis visualization people. Uh, so those are the technology providers. But then you have the customers and the end users. And those are the people with the actual problems, right? So they're the people that, that need to understand. They, they don't want to be dealing with the data in the weeds. They want kind of products and tools that will bring that up to the level that they want to make their decisions. And so, I mean, uh, you know, thinking through it from just the bottom up, there's there's the sensing solutions and, and just the, the types of plays that companies and organizations are trying to make in that space are significant. So maybe just starting right there, just at the, you know, the way that that people are measuring and acquiring data is has changed dramatically, even just over the last few years. So, I mean, on the sensing side, um, eDNA technology, for, for example, is a really significant development in the ocean space. You know, the idea that you don't, uh, the idea and the promise, you know, the potential for at some point in the future, not having to go out and use boats with a whole lot of fuel and a whole lot of people in the ocean to go collect, you know, some fish randomly and, and you know, pull them out of the water and use that as your statistical basis for making conclusions about, you know, who should harvest what, where, and what state is the fisheries in, um, you know, so so maybe just at that level, that the thinking that you can use DNA technology and a massive amount of data, uh, you know, that you require to be able to make those kinds of conclusions. So there's shifts in that direction. Um, if you take it a step up a notch and go to just kind of the sensor platforms, um, and so, you know, we have a huge number of projects now, very significant part of our portfolio that's on autonomous solutions. So robots, remotely controlled vehicles, autonomous vehicles, drones, which are essentially 
they're data collectors. That, that's what they are. Mm -hmm. They're platforms that contain instrumentation and, and technology that collect the data. Um, and, you know, quite, there's been a real shift even in the last five years towards more kind of on the fridge computing, getting machines and kind of those vehicles and the instrumentation that's on them to be a bit more intelligent. Because obviously in an ocean environment, it's really critical in that kind of environment. You're limited in terms of the amount of data you can transmit often. You know, for example, you know, the stuff that's underwater, you don't get a whole lot of data, right, out of those. So you have to be very selective, right, in, 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 in what you're using and what type of data you're transmitting. And so there's, there's definitely been a big shift to that. Um, I think, you know, some of the maybe just trying to keep going and go up the stack here. Uh, we have, in terms of products, quite a few software companies, for example, maybe an ocean mapping company would be a great example to use that they're pivoting to more cloud-based solutions um, and trying to get to the point that they're really empowering the people that are using their technology to be able to make their own decisions versus, you know, having these intermediary kind of middle people, uh, you know, deal with the data problem. Um, and then I guess, uh, you know, again, picking up one more notch to on land kind of complete remote control. We are seeing a really significant shift, particularly in the last year with COVID, right? Um, and the fact that people just can't get anywhere. Some of these special special personnel and, and people that would typically be called in, right, to deal with a situation are just, that's not a feasible option anymore. And so there's been a real, um, even in, even in customers that historically have been a little bit less, um, you know, a little bit more averse to really kind of adopting high technology, you know, we're seeing this big shift to um, virtual, augmented, mixed reality types of solutions. And so, you know, there's there's much more space these days for you know marine operations. Um, you know, even just a, like a maintenance solution or you know an individual on a boat that's trying to swap out a part. Um, you know, there's there's a significant amount of that that can be undertaken um, now virtually in terms of you know people communicating um, virtually. For example, you know, putting on a HoloLens and really starting to understand you know what the the process is supposed to look like. Um, and so from all the way from kind of the sensor and the hardware through to the platform and the communication of the data and the analysis of the data through to the kind of the decision making and the complete remote control, um, you know, we really, I think, are some of the really interesting ways. We're seeing that we've it seen. all. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a great um, jump to get Jason here because Jason's got some experience with HoloLens. Um, <laughs> And it's not that long ago, Jason, that you were playing with that as part of your roles and responsibilities. So it's great. Uh, thank you, Susan. That gives us such a great view of what's happening in the ocean and the work that you're doing. And uh, Jason, you're a partner at MMP, but you've been at T4G and EPAM and a number of companies, and you're leading a data practice there. So tell us a little bit about your background, what you're doing now. Sure. Hi, everyone. Thanks for... Uh Thanks for listening. Um, yeah, I, I guess I kind of took a, the the long route uh, to to get to get to the data data kind of play here. Um, you know, when if I go back twenty one years, twenty two years now, um, you know, and realize that my aspirations to become a professional ski bum or a professional cyclist weren't going to happen, um, I started working with some startups as a developer. Um, Working with BlackBerry when they were a startup known as RIM, um, developing apps on their, you know, pager devices, um, and then building out provisioning systems for uh, the largest telcos in Canada for what we today, I mean, take for granted as mobile internet and and Wi-Fi, um, 
I don't know if some of you remember when we actually had to plug into a, a, a port in the wall. Uh, we were part of that team that actually moved moved it from you know actual hard lines over to to the Wi-Fi devices. Um, and then again, like you mentioned, working for EMAM uh, as head of the delivery for Canada, leading um, innovation labs and delivery for T4G. Um, and, and you mentioned HoloLens. We, we were one of uh, a handful of HoloLens partners for Microsoft, and we were building digital twin solutions for uh, a lot of the large industries, um, you know, taking cues from what Toyota did with Microsoft and totally uh, starting to use all the sensor data that was available on the assembly floor um, and using that data to be able to swap out uh, machines and machinery and equipment at the right time so that you wouldn't have uh, this this downtime on, on some of these machines that take forever to swap out. Um, and then the latest, I guess, ha has been uh, like Susan on the Ocean Supercluster. I, I worked with the digital supercluster on the west side of, of, of the country, um, building some COVID-19 uh, solutions. And I guess a, a really cool pet project that I've been working on lately is uh, with NHL and Olympic uh, figure skaters to build an app that's going to be powered by AI and data um, that kind of uh, focuses on grassroots development of uh, talent uh, in Canada and, and the world. And so, so yeah, today, today I'm a partner here at MMP leading the COE mm -hmm. for applied data. So, what uh, does a group that's focused on data look like for an organization like MMP? I know it's very broad in capability, Jason. Yeah, it's funny because MMP, I mean, traditionally it's known as an accounting and an audit firm, and we do have a pretty significant technology group. The applied data group, you know, our whole mantra is really to make better decisions and improve operations using data. And how we do that is, We've broken my COE down into uh, specific solution leads um, and areas, which would include data engineering, um, ML and AI. Um, and then you've got your business intelligence and advanced analytics groups. Um, and so that team comprised, you know, will do your advanced predictive analytics, your artificial intelligence, machine learning, modeling, uh, dashboards, visualizations, we work on data strategy and governance. We partner with uh, large organizations and tech companies like Unity and Microsoft and Databricks um, to work on solutions for customers. So um, one thing the audience may not know is T4G has been a Canadian winner of awards with Microsoft in the data space. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about how you, how you achieve those um, because those aren't insignificant, but what does it mean to be partnering with someone like Microsoft who are really helping to lead the data play globally? Yeah, I mean, as a Microsoft Gold certified data partner, um, it's definitely something that we look at um, holistically as how does this, uh, why is this important to us? Um, for one thing, you know, definitely there's the credibility and relevance part to it, you know, as we associate ourselves with a technology partner like Microsoft. Um, 
But then it, it's also a demonstration that um, in order to get that kind of certification, um, MMP needs to, you know, focus on career development and training. And that's what's significant as well, too, because in order to re attain gold certified status, you have to have a certain number of uh, employees and, and people that, that are going to be certified and trained up in the certain technologies. Uh, and that's a, that's a big focus for MMP. Um, the other thing I look at it as is partnering with someone like Microsoft is, is really an extension of your sales arm, right? So, you know, not all, all partnerships are equal. Um, and I always say um, partnerships need to be executed properly for it to be beneficial to both parties, right? Um, because you all often get into that um, state where it's kind of like you're kind of pointing at each other, waiting for the other person to help you um, and vice versa. And so timing is important, understanding how, how each other can benefit um, and, and help each other and support each other is super important. And Microsoft's been an excellent partner to partner with for, for MMP. So uh, thank you, Jason. I'm going to, we're, we've got questions coming in, so we want to get to those. But before we do, I want to go back to Justin and have all of you give your perspective. We, we have to talk careers here a little bit. And if you were going to provide some advice to those listening uh, and watching the panel today, you've just kind of overwhelmed them with the types of careers you've had and the things that you're working on and you're seeing in the work that you're doing. Um, Justin, you talked about going back to school to work on bettering your skills. For someone that's listening, how do you provide them with some career coaching and advice on um, what to be considering as they're thinking about what's next? Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting because it's, it's like if you look back at tech when I started you learn a language and then you think I'm just going to become so good at that language and that's going to be my career. And then you realize a few years later that no one's using that anymore and you have to learn a new language and a new tool and a new platform. And then there's clouds, you're learning how to use a new cloud and then there's a new cloud. Um, what gets you through all of that is sort of more foundational skills. Um, things like, you know, you learn about, and then this is on the computer science side. So you learn about data structures. Data structures will help you learn any other language um, and just basic sort of language theory and stuff like that. And I think the same problem exists on the data side where initially, you know, everyone's, everyone's excited about data and data science is new and data, big data is cool. And, but it's really not anything new. What, what's really changed is the tools, the tools and the cheap computing power, which is making it easier to do this stuff. But really, um, you know, if you look back, actuarial risk, um, engineering, optimization. Uh, you know, they've all been using machine learning with its linear regression. These are not new things. Sure, um, neural nets are quite new. And that's actually neural nets aren't that new. It's just they're now practically possible because we have cheap compute, computing power. Um, I guess what I'm saying is because these these tools have come out of the computer science guy, side of things, and generally when new tools come out, just, the technical body using them is quite high. You need to know how to program in C++ to use the first version of TensorFlow. You need to know how to write SQL to access a big data database. So a lot of the data, big data push, and a lot of the branding, and a lot of the companies that are pushing this came from the tech side. 
But what's happening now is the tools are becoming easier to use. The technical bar is lower. And what I'm finding, especially just using UNB as an example, is to discover that one of the most advanced sort of big data machine learning and data analytics capabilities comes out of the Department of Ge- uh, Geodesic Sciences, Geodesy and Geomatics. Like they've been doing this stuff for, for quite some time, probably even more so than the computer science department. There's guys in the mechanical engineering department doing manifold learning to optimize robot path flows. Uh, in the forestry department, they're using it to optimize land use and planning, harvest planning and things like that. So what's happening is there's a shift from, I'm a data scientist, I know tech and I know how to use the tools to, which is I think is really great, is it's domain knowledge is sort of coming to the fore again. I think it was Drew Conway or one of these early data scientists who drew these the three intersecting circles, and it was mathematics and statistics, um, software engineering, or computer science. And the third wheel was this uh, domain knowledge. So because the bar to using these tools has been quite high from a technical perspective, data scientists have tend to come from a software background. Mm-hmm. Now these tools are really easy to use. They're very accessible. If you want to build a neural network, you can almost do it without writing any code. Um, so that's cracking open everything to these domain experts, which I think is the missing piece in a lot of cases. Um, you can take data, and if you're not a domain expert, you can grind through it and find some insights. But really interpreting those insights and then planning the next step to improve your model or to make decisions based on that really comes from to be a process engineer at, at Irving, and you're making decisions about optimizing catalytic output. Turns out... Advanced controls at Irving is really just guys who crunch the numbers, time series data. They're fitting ARIMA models and they're fitting um, uh, regression models to optimize the settings for the catalytic converted to maximize how much fuel, bunker oil, and, and all the different uh, products of, of the of the crude. Um, so, yeah, to my advice would be, and, and this is kind of UNB now, it's very hard to graduate without doing some sort of quantitative component like the undergraduate stats classes are full of biology students uh, for instance which i think is great you're learning these quantitative skills and they support your domain be it biology um, be it engineering Uh, and 10 years ago i would have said to someone don't go do a science degree you'll never get a job do engineering or do some sort of professional degree that's geared towards going into a specific job now, having, I would say, the three essential elements, and you could do this as an arts degree or a science degree, is have some domain knowledge, whether it's economics, ship design, um, medical, biology, take a few computer programming courses and take some quantitative courses. And the best quantitative courses in order of this is probably statistics. Um, a lot of big data, machine learning, it's all just statistics rebranded. Um, Perfect. And this is math and stats part gets gets no love. <laughs> they're very <laughs> underfunded, <laughs> and they're kind of at the at the root of all, all these skills that we're saying are so essential to growing the economy, making use of data, etc. But they don't. There's not a lot of glamour around that department. Anyway, I'll finish on that passionate note. No, that's that's perfect. <laughs> I think it's very true. And and J- Jason, I know you're hiring, so. How do you find people to do this work? And then we're going to jump into the questions. And there's a a couple questions there right at the top, Susan, for you. So, Jason, how do you find people? 
Yeah, it, I mean, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, say that what Justin said resonates with me too, and it's exactly right. Like, um, you know, if you look at it from my perspective, and I'm hiring for a consulting company, um, everyone's gonna come out of UNB, let's say, with the same kind of foundations, right? So you got to now think about how are you going to differentiate yourself and what, what is it that a consulting company like m would need um, for you to be successful? And, you know, consulting one-on-one skills is one, right? Um, but also, you know, when you think about kind of these um, data projects that have been going on, we used to call it science fair projects, right? Um, you used to get a lot of these science fair projects where uh, a customer would say, hey, can you guys, you know, help me work on this use case and, and see if you can, you know, change the trajectory or the numbers and improve the optimization or optimize it or make it more efficient. And so, you know, the data scientists would go away and they crunch some numbers off the side of their table and they come back and they present something to the, the C-level officers of the company and say, look what we did. And, you know, the results were phenomenal. The, the, the executives would be like, this is amazing. Let's 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 roll this thing out. And what would happen, right? The first thing that would happen is that data scientist would be like, "Oh, um, I don't know how to scale this, or operationalize this, or productionize this, right?" So having that foundation in data engineering or or software development is super important because then you start to look at this from a from a bigger perspective on not just this little mini science fair project, but how do I take this and actually apply it and commercialize it and monetize it after, right? Because that's what companies are going to be really interested in. Um, the other thing is, you know, how do you differentiate yourself? Um, you know, knowing the tech stack is one thing, but that alone isn't the, isn't the recipe for success. You need to know the process. You need to know, uh, you need to have the right people. So that's important as well too. And then more and more, we're starting to see like, Having that data ops, DevOps expertise is super important too. So adding that to your repertoire is 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 definitely something we look at when we start to look at candidates for for hire. Perfect. So um, I know you need both experienced and junior people. And Susan, someone's asked, you know, do you give internships to engineering students? And have you been looking at that for part of the Ocean Supercluster? Yeah, and maybe I'll, I'll answer that. And I just wanted to pick up on a couple of other comments um, that their other panelists made too. So the answer is yes. I think most of our pro some of our projects are most of our projects are relatively big. So kind of the smallest one we have is a couple million, and then we have projects that are thirty and, and forty million dollars in terms of size. So multiple sectors, you know, significant numbers of companies and organizations participating on um, projects that result in multiple different types of commercial, um, commercialization opportunities. Um, and then, um, kind of the glue coming back to the glue that binds them together is typically the common challenges and common data questions they want to answer, or the common ability of that technology to be applied to different types of different sectors, again, yeah. to answer those fundamental questions around, um, what's happening in the environment, what's happening with my assets that are in remote locations. Um, so, so there's, there's lots of, of, uh, opportunities for internships, uh, it, like throughout the entire portfolio, but how they all come about is kind of different, but yes, there's, there's, there's lots of that happening, uh, and generally quite a bit of public and private sector collaboration just at a, at an organizational level as well, being a multi-sectoral national, um, 
uh, public-private sector partnership. There's lots of these different types of consortiums that get built uh, to, to kind of tackle these hairy problems um, and lots of opportunities for really interesting value-added research uh, in there. And so maybe just to kind of, if I don't, if you don't mind, Kathy, I'll just take a second and pick up on a couple of things. Just I'm compelled, you know, given the audience uh, to make sure, you know, that people understand um, just, you know, coming back to some of the comments that, you know, Justin made um, around, you um, you know, the proliferation now of more open data, uh, relatively low cost uh, in some cases, you know, a lot of the satellite data is, uh, is is available for free now, for example. And so it's really changing the game in terms of the different types of, uh, number one, what the value of a product is, right? And some of our legacy products, as, as it's been said, you know, are starting to lose value, but there's new opportunities that are emerging um, for uh, relatively accessible opportunities for new companies. And, and new commercialization opportunities. And if you're in the data space, um, you know, I guess the first thing I would recommend is, is making sure like what you what have you've already heard in some of the other comments that you're actually looking around, you know, get your head up out of the data um, and make sure that you're understanding, you know, what relevance your skills, your data skills have in other applications. Right. Um, and, and, you know, lots I find sometimes, I guess, just some particularly with grad students there can be a tendency for people to drill in kind of into your skill and get deeper kind of amount of technical knowledge. And that will be the direction that some of you go and where you, you know, base your career. But there's just as many of you as not more that will end up in a situation where that that kind of amount of, of depth you're no longer want to have in your career. You're going to want to branch out and look somewhere else. So, you know, make sure, you know, as you're working through developing your data skills, um, that you're looking around in terms of like where's the value opportunity, value added opportunity for me to apply those skills in different sectors, different types of companies, different types of projects, different domain areas. I think that that will be really important, you know, and that that gets you kind of more versatile, right, as a as an individual. Sure. Um, and then the other thing too is just around um, opportunities for actually starting a new company and, and making sure that you're looking around and understanding what the commercialization opportunities are within your space because there's there's lots of new there's lots of opportunities out there for for data savvy people. So I want to make sure I cuz we we have some UMB MBA students on and we know we have students from multiple universities on but uh, one of the questions that's been asked is if you're a UMB MBA student or you've come through that program um, how how can you approach a career in data analytics? They don't necessarily have any of the depth in technology that some of you have talked about on the panel. Any advice? Someone's even asked, you know, are courses like Google Analytics and others beneficial? So that business student, without that deep technical knowledge, would you have a couple of pieces of advice? Anybody? I'll leave it open to whoever would like to answer that one. Susan? Does Susan well, concern? really special, right? Because, you know, a lot of cases, you've got a breadth of an understanding that a data person doesn't have. And so, you know, just, just because you're not data, you know, come from a data background doesn't mean that you can't get the basics and start talking the language. And then, and then though the data people will help you with the really crunchy data stuff. And, and then you're, you're not necessarily, there's lots of different kinds of places in an organization for people. And that's why we need MBAs. Like I've got an MBA. I, I have a big kind of a data heavy background. I had to go get an MBA and then back to Justin's comment, I just a couple of years ago, I had to co-take three or four grad courses in statistics, right? Like that's exactly what I had to do, you know, try to stay relevant in the industry. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, don't sell yourself short around, you know, the capability to get from business because, you know, they, coming back to the kind of the fundamentals, 
data is only as good as what you can actually use it for and, and help you to decide on and get ahead. And, and if you're working in the private sector, um, typically, you know, to, to, to generate sales and revenue and, and to, you know, improve the competitiveness of your business. And so, um, you know, what, what we, you know, speaking from our perspective with the Ocean Supercluster Initiative, one of the things that we look the hardest at in terms of awarding funding to technology developers and companies that are trying to innovate is the business case. And that actually comes kind of above to a certain extent, you know, the technology um, that's being developed as part of the project, the innovation that's happening, it's it's got to be novel and it's got to be unique. But at the end of the day, you've got to be able to make money off it and people are going to want to buy it. Um, and, and, and there needs to be an inherent value and business case associated with that. Um, and, and, you know, MBA program is, is geared really to help people understand what, um, you know, how to be able to deliberate and interpret all that in a way that will help you grow your business. Right. So um, maybe I'm carrying on here, but, you know, that's, they're, they're no, that's perfect. <laughs> Jason or Justin, anything? To add, I think, I think specific to the, um, you know, is is something like Google Analytics uh, beneficial? Uh, I would say yes and no. Um, it 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 really depends. I think it'll give you the foundation and and an understanding of how data and and analytics work. Um, have I seen it specifically in pure data plays? Not not as much, I'd say. Um, more from a user experience, customer experience, digital experience perspective, the GA part uh, happens quite more, uh, more often. Um, but definitely if you're coming in fresh from a non-data perspective or, or background, that will give you a lot of um, insight into how things work for sure. And it's a, it's a really fast ramp up for that. Perfect. Justin? Uh, yeah, Google Analytics is great. We have a like this marketing part department, and for a small company, we have a marketing department of four people, which is quite a lot. And I've been, I've never really thought of marketing as a hard science, but what they're able to do now with, um, I mean, Google Analytics is, and once again, this comes back to tools versus methodology. Google Analytics is one of the tools. The methodology is search engine optimization, um, A/B testing. Uh, campaign optimization. And these are all like A-B testing is basically design of experiments. So back to <laughs> shout out to the stats department. But back to my original statement where like things like a language and tools change, fundamentals will see you through a broader spectrum of your broader period of your career. So Google Analytics is probably a great tool uh, as long as you're sort of pulling out the things that transcend, the concepts and methodologies that transcend using that tool will get you to when Google Analytics is not no longer the flavor of the flavor of the day, those skills will transition you into the next one. And it's the same on the on the computer side, like less and less is pro computer programming becoming a profession. It's now more of a skill. So people who would study computer science and computer programming would be computer programmers. Um, and their job would be to write computer code. Now like I said, it's domain knowledge. You're now you're a mechanical engineer and you're building models for robotic controls. So computer programming or data cleaning or data ana analysis will become a tool rather than a profession. So that's this, this bundle of some domain knowledge, whether it's MBA finance, uh, MBA marketing, engineering, coupled with an ability to write some code. And I don't even mean low-level code. I mean, code now encompasses really even using Excel, just being able to use 
automated tools to to do these jobs. Um, yeah, so that in a nutshell, these use these think of these as tools, but always be trying to look for the underlying concepts, the data structure concept, the um, marketing optimization concept, rather than the specific tool that you're using that particular at that particular time. Perfect. Well, look, um, I want to tell you there are lots of jobs here in Atlantic Canada and in New Brunswick. And if you want to learn more about some of the technology companies that are here, if you're interested in the tech industry, go to techimpact.it. You'll see uh, just an example. Um, You can go to two spots, go see who our members are. MMP happens to be a member, so you can click on that to find out more about MMP. But also in another section, you can see some of the qualified technology providers that we've outlined are, you know, really great companies in Atlantic Canada that have been delivering on a digital boost program for us. So you can just see some of those companies. So there's lots of job opportunities here and there's lots of great companies here in Atlantic Canada. The other thing uh, before I pass it over to Nandy is um, there are federal programs. There are multiple, but one by ICTC that if you are looking for work this summer, ICTC has a program that the employer can put in to pay between 50 and 75, 70% of your salary for the summer. So there are programs out there that are incenting companies to hire students for these sorts of internships. So make sure when you're applying for jobs or you're approaching employers you also have that in your back pocket. So you can say, hey, maybe there's an opportunity you can apply to use this program and that will help uh, create a business case to get you on board. So don't forget to look at that too. So um, look, thank you panelists. This has been a fantastic hour, so deep in so many different areas and we can't thank you enough and good luck to finding out who's gonna be a finalist. I really enjoyed this conversation and a big thank you to our guests and the opportunity given to us from UMB. I kept putting myself into the shoes of a student and imagining the choices that I have in front of me for careers in data. Justin, Susan, and Jason had diverse stories and perspectives. If you head over to the Tech Impact blog, you'll see more depth on each one of our guests from the podcast. They made it clear that the opportunities right now are limitless and changing every day because of technology. I also am a lifelong learner and I love learning about career opportunities and the students had a ton of questions. Options are important and what I've learned over the years is that if you've worked in technology and data, it's a career where lifelong learning needs to be embraced or you'll simply be left behind. Tech Impact, we're happy to be a platinum sponsor for the IBEC Data Challenge. Congratulations to UMB for another great data challenge to all the winners and we look forward to next year's event. Talk soon.